Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Taishin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories from Caixin, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And this is Ada Shen. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. This week, China's financial regulators are tallying up more victories in their campaign to rein in financial leverage. Lenders have been forced to scale back opaque and risky lending practices. The crackdown targets the practice of so-called fake equity real debt, by which high-risk loans to borrowers like local government financing vehicles and property developers are disguised, with lenders passing them off as equity investments. China Citic Bank has already suspended its fake equity real debt business, and several other banks have followed. This is the latest signal that the regulatory storm unleashed by the China Banking Regulatory Commission in March is starting to bite. Banks have been cutting the amount of money they borrow from each other in the interbank market through negotiable certificates of deposit, and there has been a notable decline in banks' investment in wealth management products, or WMPs. Also, a number of financial regulators have been put under disciplinary investigation. Caixin and Seneca will keep tracking this complex but incredibly significant storm for you. Externally, some bad news. Moody's Investor Service on Wednesday downgraded China's sovereign credit rating for the first time since 1989, warning that the government's focus on maintaining growth will increase the country's debt burden and erode its financial strength. The downgrade was from AA3 to A1, which is the fifth highest level and the same ranking as nations including Japan and Saudi Arabia. The Chinese government obviously is not happy with the downgrade. The Ministry of Finance blasted it as based on groundless opinions and added that the company overstated the difficulties China faces in boosting its economic growth and underestimated the government's ability to push ahead with structural reform. Analysts say that while it may increase the overseas financing costs of Chinese companies and affect market sentiment in the short term, the downgrade is unlikely to have a major or lasting impact on the broader economy. For China's booming biotech sector, one local champion, BGI Genomics Company, has received the green light from China's securities regulator for a public offering. Based in Shenzhen, BGI is the world's largest provider of genome sequencing services, and it's responsible for establishing China's first gene bank. Some of its largest clients include state-owned China National Tobacco Corp and the University of Oxford. 
Even though it's a startup, it's already profitable. Last year, it reported profits of 350 million yuan, but its path to IPO has been bumpy to say the least. It planned to list on the Nasdaq and in Hong Kong, but was not allowed because of requirements that foreign capital be kept out of applications and research in China involving human stem cells and gene diagnosis and treatment. Another booming sector in China, manufacturing of drones, has seen a setback as well. A number of recent drone scares at a major airport may have sparked a regulatory reset for rules regarding unmanned aerial vehicles. Chinese drone makers sell about 80,000 units every quarter, according to industry tracker IDC. Contributing in a large way to the industry's success has been China's relatively lax regulatory environment for drone flying. We will see how long that will last. Caixin Global ran a terrific piece this week about the Bollywood movie Dangal. It's done tremendous box office in China. We talked to Caixin editor Purnima Weerasekara about why films from India and from Korea are doing so well in China. So, Purnima, an Indian film, Dangal, has just become China's highest grossing non-Hollywood foreign movie. Tell us why this film is connecting with Chinese moviegoers. Dangal is a film that has been inspired by the real-life story of a wrestler who trains his daughters to become world champion grapplers in a country where there is a lot of discrimination against women and also there's a lot of corruption in sport. So this film is a no-frills production because when you think of Bollywood, you think of very long movies with long songs and catchy dance numbers. But this is quite a low-budget film which is quite gritty and wrestles many heavyweight issues like gender inequality, stereotypes, how difficult it is for people from poor villages to um, get a break into the national sporting scene. Are these elements part of why it's done so well in China? Dangal has done surprisingly well in the Chinese box office, given that it released on the same week as Guardians of the Galaxy number two. So if you remember, Guardians of the Galaxy went all the way to the top of the US box office. And usually such films are expected to do well here in China as well. So Dangal was a surprise hit. And why has it resonated with Chinese audiences? I think, and even many film critics have said, Korean films and Indian films are gaining ground here because the values that they portray are very similar to social issues or the values you find here in Chinese society. If you look at Dangal, it's talking about, one, strict parenting, which is an issue that has been debated here in China as well. It talks about a father who's trying to push his own ambitions or his own unfulfilled ambitions onto his daughters. And I have many, many Chinese friends who've spent hours practicing piano as children because they don't want to let down their mothers, although they hate doing it. Another reason is that Chinese films have a lot of limitations when it comes to discussing social issues like gender inequality. And this topic of the opportunities a woman has to become the master of her own fate, and that is a universal theme that resonates anywhere. But specifically here in China, where you've seen this huge economic boom happening without the kind of cultural reform or progress happening where women still have to grapple with so many stereotypes, where a son is still preferred in many places, even in urban big cities like Beijing or Shanghai. So I feel it's the universal theme that has resonated with the Chinese audiences and also the very Asian kind of problems of tiger moms and tiger dads and wolf dads. So Indian film has something of a history in China. Give our listeners a sense of this. Indian cinema has been popular in China, particularly in the 60s and 70s, before China actually opened up in the 80s. I have met several people in their, in their 50s and 60s who have sung 
these Bollywood song lyrics to me. And they remember these iconic actors from Bollywood, like Raj Kapoor, who was considered Bollywood's Charlie Chaplin, had a huge fan following here. And after China's opening up in the 80s, Hollywood films flooded the country. And then English language cinema, or particularly Hollywood films, dominated the big screens here. And I think that led to this long absence of other types of foreign films here. But now I see not just Indian cinema, but other types of art films and other foreign films making a comeback, slowly making inroads into the world's second largest box office. Thanks, Purnima. Sex is in the business news in China, and we talked to Caixin editor Doug Young about this. Doug, there are two such stories on Caixin this week, right? Well, there's a couple of interesting sex-related stories in the headlines this week. Um, they're both fairly big-sized deals, actually, but the common theme is we're seeing Chinese companies go abroad and, and make sex-related purchases. Uh, the first of the deals was actually one that started earlier this year, and a, a company called Kunlun Technology has purchased the U.S. social dating app called Grinder, which is popular in the gay community in the U.S. and probably some other places, but I think it's mostly a U.S.-based thing. So the story is that Kunlun bought 60% of Grinder in the beginning of the year, and now they've just swooped in and bought the remaining 40%. And I think the total that they are paying for the whole package is around $250 million U.S. dollars. So that's story number one. The other story is a healthcare products company, a Chinese company called HumanWell, has been teaming up with Citic, which is the big financial conglomerate in China, and they are paying $600 million for basically the sexual protective products division of an Australian company called Ansel, which apparently is the world's second biggest condom maker. Uh, so they're site says they're known for their condoms and their lubricants. So, you know, these are two examples of Chinese companies sort of tiptoeing into what would have been pretty taboo areas. I mean, condoms has never been as taboo in China because of the big focus on birth control, but certainly talk on how to use them. And in China these days, you do see condoms pretty much everywhere. When you go to convenience stores and supermarkets, there's always a big condom display in the front of the store right by the cash registers. So both of these deals probably speak to China becoming more open, talking about sex. So would it be overstating the case to attribute even part of these kinds of deals to a, a liberalization in Chinese society? I think that's a valid point. Sex traditionally has been a pretty taboo subject in China, but you do read about sex education is getting more play in schools. It's happening slowly, but it's happening. And I think people are more willing to talk about this stuff. And so by the same token, people are more willing to use these dating apps. And then with Grindr, you get into the whole issue of homosexuality, which has also been relatively taboo in China, but is becoming more accepted and stuff like premarital sex. The whole range of sexual topics are certainly entering more into the Chinese mainstream. And, and you could probably argue these two purchases reflect that. So for the Grinder purchase, do the new Chinese owners want to bring the app to Chinese users? Presumably. They didn't really say they in their statement, because the company that's buying it is called Kunlun Technology. They're a game operator. This is like completely, you know, the only thing in common is they're both internet-based. Well, 
and recreational activities. That's right. Fun recreational activities. But they did say in their statement, you know, they want to get more into social networking. So, you know, grinders, sure, they have a niche, but I think at the same time, they have a lot of social networking expertise. So maybe Kunlun is looking beyond just the particular niche that they're in. But I wouldn't be surprised if they try and bring grinders services to China. But, you know, these apps do exist and there's porn on the Chinese Internet, whether or not you admit it. There's this app that's incredibly popular called Momo, which is always likened to uh, the Chinese equivalent of Tinder, which essentially people call a hookup app. It basically lets you find somebody nearby who wants to have sex. Thanks, Doug. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll tell you about the latest humiliation for mankind in the continuing saga of the rise of the machines, a victory in Weichi, or Go, by an artificial intelligence system against a human champ. We'll look into the connections between dirt-dishing billionaire on the lamb Guo Wengui and former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, who helped connect Guo with funds from the Emirate of Abu Dhabi. We'll hear how Beijing's stores without doors are coping after the city walled over many illegal storefronts around the capital. We'll find out how the Chinese government is intervening in the aftermath of a scientific fraud scandal involving the academic journal Springer Nature, which has retracted over a hundred cancer-related papers with fake peer reviews. And we'll find out how poor pay and physical and verbal abuse have provoked a critical shortage of nurses in China's hospitals. From Business and Tech, World Champ, No Match for Artificial Intelligence in Game of Go by Yang Ge. Beijing. A sense of inevitability hovered over a grid-like board on Thursday as a man faced off against a machine in what turned out to be the last stand for the world's champion master at the ancient Chinese game of Go. Within four hours, Chinese national Kujie had surrendered to Alpha Go, losing for the second time in their three-game match pitting the old against the new. A third and final game will take place on Saturday, where the best that Ke, who will turn 20 in August, can hope is to save a little face for both himself and humanity. The atmosphere at Game 2 of the match was decidedly more relaxed than the first one on Tuesday when Go took about four hours to lose to AlphaGo, a computer designed by Google's DeepMind unit, said Huangshan, a reporter covering the event in the ancient and scenic water town of Wuzhen for MIT Technology Review's China affiliate. A humbled Ke was surprisingly sanguine in the rest day between the two matches, posting photos on his microblog of himself visiting a local park where he tried his hand at archery, picked some fruit from a tree, and enjoyed some fishing in Wuzhen. In the year leading up to the highly anticipated match, Ke slowly transformed from a self-assured world champ to a more timid opponent, realizing he would play against a machine that was undefeated in 61 contests with only one tie. In a recent appearance on a cultural affairs TV program, Ke was quoted as saying, I'm not afraid of losing to AlphaGo and being ridiculed by everyone. My fear is that my loss would represent the loss of something forever. The sense of loss was also tempered with a feeling of inevitability on the internet, where fans were mourning the defeat. AlphaGo is really too strong, said one observer named Gaogamingzutolea. In the end, Kujie is just a human with feelings and able to feel pressure. He's already super, representing the greatest at Go. The outcome was all too familiar for many, repeating a stream of defeats of humans to computers at some of the world's oldest games. The first to fall was Garry Kasparov, master at Western Chess, who was defeated 20 years ago by the famed IBM computer called Deep Blue. 
Last year, an earlier version of AlphaGo defeated another Go master, South Korean Lee Sedol, by a score of 4-1 to in a five-game match. In this case, the game had extra meaning for the millions of Chinese followers since both Ke and the game of Go itself come from their culture, one of the oldest with 3,000 years of history. AlphaGo's human master, DeepMind CEO Demis Hasabis, was full of praise for Ke throughout the match, complimenting the Chinese champion up to the very end. AlphaGo wins game two. What an amazing and complex game, he wrote on his Twitter account after the second game ended. Kujie pushed AlphaGo right to the limit. With a history of more than 2,500 years, Go, known as Weiqi in Chinese, pits two players against each other on a grid-like board using black and white chips or stones. It is believed to be the world's oldest continuously played board game and was once considered a pastime of aristocrats. The game was mostly dominated by South Korean and Japanese masters in the 1980s and 1990s, including a 16-year stint as world champion by South Korean Lee Chang-ho starting in 1991. From People. Brokerage Deal Sheds Light on Fugitive Tycoon's Ties with Abu Dhabi and Tony Blair by Wang Duan, Yang Yangwen in Hong Kong, Li Zhengxin in Washington, D.C., and Ning in London, and Yu Ning in Beijing. Leveraging connections with former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, China's fugitive businessman Guo Wengui, also known as Miles Kwok, raised $3 billion from Abu Dhabi's royal family to fund an attempt to take control of China's second-largest brokerage house, Haitong Securities, sources have told Taishin. But the investment has resulted in billion-dollar losses and a failed lawsuit. Six years after leaving Downing Street, Blair came under scrutiny in September 2013 for taking luxury private jet trips to the Middle East as a United Nations peace envoy. British media questioned the former prime minister over who paid the thousands of pounds charged for every hour of flight. Blair's interest in private jets is no secret. According to Britain's Daily Mail, Blair proposed while in office to have a presidential-style plane for the head of state, which was rejected by the parliament as being too expensive. During his tenure as Special Middle East Envoy, Blair frequently used private jets for global trips, which was extensively reported by British media. Counted among those reported to have funded his private jet trips was Libya's former dictator, the late Muammar Gaddafi. Caixin recently learned from sources that Chinese businessman Guo Wengui traveled with Blair to the Middle East in 2013 and paid for one such trip. Blair introduced Guo to key Abu Dhabi figures, including the Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayyan. Guo, 50 years old, is the controlling shareholder and property developer Beijing Zenith Holdings and Beijing Pangu Investment. Interpol put Guo on its red notice list of wanted people in April. The Chinese government referred to Guo as a criminal suspect. Guo's relationship with the Blair family can be traced back to 2009, when Guo bought 5,000 copies of Sherry Blair's autobiography, Speaking for Myself, according to British media reports. The report cited Mrs. Blair as saying she has met Guo a couple of times, but doesn't know him well. Sources familiar with the matter said Guo and Blair stayed in contact until Guo was targeted by Interpol. In 2013, the year Blair made the Middle East trip funded by Guo, the two met again in Beijing that December. Caixin learned from sources that Blair and Guo's most recent meeting took place this year. Blair is well-connected in the Middle East. Britain's Telegraph newspaper reported in 2016 that Blair has an extremely close relationship with Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nayan, the foreign minister of United Arab Emirates and the brother of the Crown Prince. 
The 2013 visit to the Middle East with Blair helped Guo build a connection with the Abu Dhabi royal family, from which he raised the funds for his doomed equity investment in Haitong Securities. Blair's office, in response to Xin early Thursday, said Blair has known Guo as a friend for 10 years, and Guo has in the past been a donor to Blair's charitable work. It said Blair has never had any commercial contract with Guo nor received fees from him. You may know that Mr. Blair has in any event now wound up his company business to concentrate on his not-for-profit activities, so your story is wrong, said the office, without answering Taishin's question about Blair's role in Guo's connection with Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi Funding Officials in China and the UAE have been eyeing bilateral economic cooperation for some time. Chinese leaders in early 2012 proposed an establishment with the UAE of an intergovernmental joint investment fund. In late 2013, the official UAE-China Joint Investment Fund was created with $10 billion and has invested in clean energy, infrastructure, and other projects. The fund is jointly managed by UAE state-backed Mubadala Capital, China Development Bank Capital, and the State Administration of Foreign Exchange. But Guo moved faster. After the 2013 Middle East trip with Blair, Guo began preparations for an investment fund with the UAE. Sources close to the matter told Taishin that Guo set up an investment fund in Hong Kong in 2014, with $3 billion raised from the royal family. In May 2014, Guo started negotiations with the financial in May 2014, Guo started negotiations with the financial services giant UBS for an investment by the fund in Haitong, a major Chinese securities firm. At that time, Guo was still a close ally of Ma Jian, the former vice minister of the Ministry of State Security, who later fell under a graft investigation. In August 2014, Guo came into the spotlight with a major business dispute, a fight between Peking University Founder Group Company and Guo's Beijing Zenith Holdings was ignited by disputes over control and terms of the pair's jointly owned Founder Securities Company. Amid accusations of fraud and other wrongdoing, the business dispute spilled over into graft charges and led to the detention of top executives from both sides, including the CEO of Founder Group, Li Yo. Guo fled China soon after. Li was detained over charges of corruption in January of 2015, and Ma Jian came under investigation for alleged graft. Guo's assets in China were frozen in the unfolding investigation. A Taishin report in March 2015 revealed how Guo and Ma formed a close alliance, using national security power to meddle in business deals. In response to Guo's subsequent attacks on Taishin, Taishin filed lawsuits against Guo and his companies, accusing him of fabricating and disseminating false information. But Guo's troubles on the mainland didn't stop his bid for Haitong through the Hong Kong-based fund, maneuvering capital from UAE and investment vehicles to seek control of the brokerage house while he remains a fugitive overseas. Haitong Deal Established in 1988, Shanghai-based Haitong is China's second-largest securities firm by assets behind Citic Securities. According to filings with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, Haitong Securities in December of 2014 revealed a plan to issue new shares to raise Hong Kong 30 billion, about 3.9 billion US dollars from seven designated investors. Taishin found that at least three of the seven were closely connected to Guo. They acquired more than 67% of the new shares issued by Haitong. That gave them a combined 11.2% stake in the company after the placement, exceeding the 3.5% owned by the largest single shareholder, state-owned Bright Food Group. But Guo's investments in Haitong suffered huge losses in the stock market meltdown in summer 2015. This triggered a lawsuit in the U.S. filed by Guo against the investment bank UBS in October 2015, seeking compensation for losses on a margin call. 
According to court documents in which Guo was identified as Guo Kowan, a company Guo controlled in 2015, bought 569 million of Haitong's Hong Kong listed shares with 1.275 billion US dollars, including 500 million of Guo's capital and 775 million borrowed from UBS. Sources with knowledge said that the 500 million came from the fund Guo raised from Abu Dhabi. Guo's company made the investment through another company called Don State. This arrangement was to avoid Guo having to publicly disclose his holdings in Haitong, court documents showed. The transaction was completed in May 2015, when Haitong's shares had enjoyed a month-long spike, but the stock soon slumped amid the market meltdown. In just a few days in July, Haitong's shares in Hong Kong plunged by 30%. According to court documents, UBS issued a margin call on July 9th, demanding a transfer of at least $200 million within 24 hours. Guo failed to make the payment, and UBS the next day sold all of the Haitong position held by Don State, resulting in a $495 million loss for Guo. Guo blamed UBS for misleading him into underestimating the urgency of a margin call and hired the famous U.S. attorney, David Boas, to sue UBS in the state court in New York. Forbes first reported the lawsuit. But the court dismissed the lawsuit, saying it was not the appropriate venue to adjudicate an investment that took place and was negotiated in Hong Kong. Guo recently expressed publicly that he will launch another lawsuit against UBS in Hong Kong. ACA Capital An investment bank source told Caixin that William Zhe, Yu Jianming, an old acquaintance of Guo's, assisted in his investment in Haitong. At the time, Zhe was China chairman of Macquarie Group, one of the investment banks hired for Haitong's placement along with UBS. Zhe at the time held discussions about Haitong's share sales on behalf of Guo, said the source. Zhe declined a Taishin request for comment on the matter. Macquarie introduced Manaukai Capital and Insight Capital into the deal, sources said. The two companies jointly invested $1.6 billion in Haitong. Zhe left Macquarie in March 2015 and joined Guo's Hong Kong-based ACA Capital Limited Group, the asset management firm, which, according to its website, focuses on investors from the Middle East and East Asia. Taishin's investigation of company registration documents found that a number of ACA subsidiaries in Hong Kong share the same registration address with companies controlled by Guo Qiang, who is Guo Wenghui's son. On May 2nd of this year, Chinese Foreign Affairs Minister Wang Yi met UAE Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed in Beijing, vowing to boost bilateral cooperation, including anti-corruption, tracing fugitives, and recovering their illegal proceeds overseas. The UAE will never become a safe haven for any corrupt Chinese fugitive, Wang said. From People, Stores Without Doors Struggle After Beijing Illegal Shop Cleanup Campaign by Liang Yingfei, Ma Minghui, and Wu Gang. Residents in Beijing have noticed recently that some of the side street stores in their neighborhoods have suddenly disappeared, with the small openings at the foot of the residential buildings, which were formerly the fronts of small restaurants, stores, or hair salons, now sealed with brick walls. Some newly remodeled walls have windows with signs still displaying previous services such as hair salon, operating as usual. At the beginning of this year, the Beijing government launched a campaign to crack down on local citizens who broke city rules by modifying residential building first floors for commercial use. In late April, the campaign extended to the Sanlitun area of Chaoyang District, a place frequented by expatriates because of the clusters of bars and entertainment venues. Half of the storefronts were demolished or had their walls and windows sealed. The renovation extended into the Dongcheng District and other areas. 
The illegal modifications of residential buildings into business units started in the 1980s when the country began to shift from a planned to a market economy. People began opening businesses to make money wherever possible, and many residential buildings that were not designed for commercial use saw their ground floors used as shops. Local authorities say such modifications can be dangerous as they often change buildings' structures, frequently including pillar walls. Illegal modifications may also add structures that block sidewalks or fire passages. However, no major action was taken to correct these violations until recently. Store owners have complained that the crackdown came too promptly without giving them enough time to get rid of their stock or negotiating the end of the rental contracts with property owners. Residents living nearby also have mixed feelings. Some are happy that the alleys, or hutongs, which used to be noisy and disorderly because of the presence of various businesses and bars, have become quiet now. Others complain that closing small shops have made their life inconvenient. They can no longer buy cheap groceries from neighborhood stores. Despite complaints from business owners and some residents, the crackdown continues. According to the Beijing government plan, the work will continue for three years to 2019, and planners say they will make sure all small streets and alleys are cleaned and free of illegally dug storefronts. From People, Chinese Government to Review Cancer Papers Retracted by Academic Journal by Li Rongde. China's Education Ministry and the National Health Commission will review over 100 research papers taken down by an international academic journal after finding possible irregularities including plagiarism, according to the China Association for Science and Technology. Berlin-based Springer Nature said on April 20th that it had investigated 109 research articles authored by Chinese academics published in Tumor Biology between 2012 and 2016, and found that the authors had supplied the journal's editors with made-up contact information for third-party reviewers. There have been several incidents in recent years where Chinese researchers, who are under pressure to produce academic papers to secure promotions, have been caught plagiarizing or falsifying research data. The papers in question, 106 in total, not 107 as reported earlier, are a gross violation of academic norms and integrity, said Sanyong, party secretary of the government-backed China Association for Science and Technology, at a news conference in Beijing on Thursday. About 80% of the papers were published before 2015, he said. The retraction has tarnished the reputation of the scientific community in China, Shang said. The association will supervise relevant government agencies, including the Ministry of Education and the National Health and Family Planning Commission, who will evaluate each paper and their authors for possible irregularities such as plagiarism in order to hold errant parties to account, he said. The scandal also helped expose lax oversight over academic activities in China and the network of agents offering ghostwriting services and predatory publishers who charge Chinese academics and doctors for publishing their work, he said. Publishers must take responsibility to verify the authenticity of academic papers, including peer reviews, Wang Chunfa, director of the association, said during a meeting with Arno Jacobs, head of Springer Nature's operations in Greater China, on April 18th, two days before the retractions were announced. From People Poor pay, rising violence, leads to acute nursing shortage. By Song Shiqing and Huang Liyao. Xi'an. 
When Nurse Gaule's mother was battling cancer, Gao says she was too busy taking care of other patients and hardly had time to stay by her mother's side until her mother died in the same hospital where Gao worked. I could have requested leave, but I was too ashamed to do so, said Gao, who works for Xi'an Gaoxin Hospital, a major private health care provider in Shanxi province. When I'm away, my colleagues have to take my share of work. Everyone is overstretched to a point to which they often can't squeeze even a little time out to eat, drink water, or even go to the bathroom. According to government estimates, China's hospitals need more than one million new nurses by 2020 as the country grapples with demand from an aging population and a growing middle class. But overwork, poor pay, and rising violence at the workplace, mostly from angry patients, have led to an exodus of nursing staff in recent years. One in ten registered nurses left the health sector before they hit retirement age in 2015, the latest year for which attrition data is available. A survey that year found that 58.7% of the nurses felt like quitting, said Professor Fang Pengqian from Huazhong University of Science and Technology, who led the study. But the nursing sector has long been ignored by the government, which has dragged its feet for years on introducing laws that can address these issues without offering reasons for the delays. Gao says she often works 12-hour shifts, six days a week. She not only has to care for inpatients and assist doctors during surgery, but also urge patients to pay their medical bills on time, push cleaning staff to empty the trash bins, and fix TV sets in the ward. Crippling Shortage Gao is one of the 3.5 million registered nurses in China, where there were just over two nurses for each 1,000 patients in 2016. In comparison, the U.S. and Japan each had 11 nurses per 1,000 patients in 2014, according to data from the World Bank. With a population of 1.38 billion, China needs at least 640,000 nurses to reach the World Health Organization, WHO, standard of three nurses per 1,000 people, according to a Caixin calculation based on figures released by the National Health and Family Planning Commission earlier this month. But instead of recruiting new staff, hospitals were pushing more patients onto their existing nursing pool. About 63.5% of nurses and 55% of doctors surveyed nationwide said it was common practice to add extra beds to wards with no additional support for the nursing staff, according to a 2015 study by the China Nurses Association. Government data also show that China's doctor-to-nurse ratio was 1 to 1.45 in 2016, well below the World Bank's standard of at least two nurses to assist a physician. A major obstacle to pushing up this ratio is the low nursing services fee stipulated by the government. Both public and private hospitals must follow a set of standards issued by provincial governments when charging patients for medical services. The daily fee for the highest level of nursing care in top-level hospitals in Beijing was only 25 yuan, less than $4. This was just one-fourth of the daily nursing cost of 96 yuan in the city in 2015, according to an article in Health Development Outlook, a magazine published by Peking University. Compared to this, the government's upper limit on charges for services offered by doctors, including the consultation fees, were much higher. This has prompted hospitals to hire more doctors while squeezing salaries and benefits for nurses. More than 76% of nurses across the country earned less than 5,000 yuan per month, which was less than the average monthly pay of 5,600 yuan in smaller, second-tier cities in China, according to a joint survey in May by China Social Welfare Foundation, Xinhua News Agency, Nurses Concern Foundation, and online health services provider Hualian120.com. 
Less than 4.5% of nurses nationwide earned more than 8,000 yuan per month, it found. In Xi'an, the capital of Shanxi province in central China, Gao and most of her colleagues with five years of experience or less earned 2,400 yuan a month. Things worsened in the smaller neighboring city of Xianyang. Through a series of interviews, Xi'an found that the largest maternity and children's hospital there paid most of its nurses with up to seven years of experience, a little over 1,000 yuan per month. This fell below the city's minimum wage of 1,680 yuan. Kicked on the job. In addition to poor pay and long work hours, nurses have witnessed an increase in incidents of workplace violence, mostly from disgruntled patients and their families. In April, a mother kicked a nurse to the ground for allegedly failing to correctly insert a needle into her dehydrated son's arm, the incident at a hospital in Nanjing led to a heated debate on Chinese social media about workplace safety for nurses. CCTV footage from the hospital showed the nurse withdrawing the needle as soon as she stood up. The debate came at a time when the nursing community was already on edge after another high-profile incident. A man was arrested in southern China in July for allegedly assaulting a pregnant nurse because he was angry over the care she was giving his son. In that case, in Hainan province, the man had become violent after the nurse asked him to turn off his son's sailing drip while she carried out another duty, local media reported. Two out of five nurses in the country had experienced physical violence or verbal abuse from patients or their families in the past year, the May survey found. Some patients were verbally abusive and called nurses' names because they were angry that the treatment or medical checks were overpriced, Gao said. It is common to see nurses with black and blue arms, she added. Some minimally conscious patients would forcefully kick and strike them, and some conscious ones would pinch them on purpose when the treatment was painful, she said. The study in May also found that more than 51% of nurses nationwide had suffered psychological trauma. Symptoms of depression are common among us, Gao said. These have been exacerbated by a decline in society's recognition and respect for nurses' contributions over the past two decades, the study indicated. 40-year-old head nurse Hu's face lights up when she talks about how her patients used to treat her in the 1980s. Many recovered patients came from afar on their tractors to the hospital just to say thank you. Many brought eggs from their farms or insults for our shoes that they had made themselves, said Hu, who only gave her last name. Gao recalled a similar experience in 1999 when her patients always remembered her name and greeted her warmly on the streets. But nowadays, patients will not greet you outside the hospital even after you've saved their lives, she said. The May survey polled 51,406 nurses nationwide and found that 90% of respondents didn't feel respected by the public and 92% felt a nurse's standing in society had deteriorated over time. This dramatic change in patients' attitudes toward medical staff is a side effect of China's health care reform. In 2000, Beijing started encouraging all hospitals to generate revenue to fill holes in their budgets after government subsidies were gradually phased out in the 1990s. Nearly half the country's public hospitals have been privatized since then. With the government subsidy covering only 8% of their expenses, public hospitals turned to selling drugs at huge markups and tied part of doctors' benefits packages to profits earned from medicine sales. This has led to widespread complaints by patients who say that doctors were over-prescribing drugs and tests to push up hospital profits. The latest wave of reforms aims to ease government controls on hospitals by giving them more leeway to decide on fees for medical services to boost revenue instead of relying on drug sales. Provincial governments have published a new set of standards on the maximum prices hospitals can charge, including a cap on nursing fees. 
For example, in Shanxi province, the government raised the upper limit for top-grade nursing care in big hospitals to 36 yuan per day from 24 yuan, a hospital source from Xi'an said. Most hospitals have already pushed up their charges to the maximum limit, according to the source, who wished to remain anonymous. But as the new limits have taken effect on April 8th, it is too early to say how the changes can help improve nurses' working conditions and salaries. No legal cover. The nursing community has been clamoring for a law to protect them from workplace violence, according to Li Xiuhua, a member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, CPPCC, the country's top political advisory body, who has advocated for such a law over the past four years. China has two regulations concerning nurses introduced in 1993 and 2008, but they only outline the registration procedure for nurses and their job responsibilities. They don't address the issues of mental or physical harm while on duty. Lawmakers have delayed introducing a law to address issues of pay and workplace safety for nurses because the nursing profession has been neglected in Chinese society, says Zhou Yan, a professor of public administration at the South University of Political Science and Law in a recent interview with healthcare magazine China Hospital CEO. The country also lacks a grading system that classifies nurses based on their years of experience or level of expertise and stipulates corresponding salaries and benefits, similar to that in U.S. hospitals. Many people think nurses are merely assistants to doctors and have postponed the law with excuses like, the timing is not right, said Joe. The central government's policy agenda for the 2016 to 2020 period requires hospitals to raise nurses' salaries, but it doesn't say whether the government would increase subsidies to cover the extra expenses. The government also wants to ensure that the country meets the WHO standard of having more than three nurses per 1,000 people by 2020. To achieve that goal, China needs to raise its number of registered nurses to 4.45 million in 2020 from 3.24 million in 2015. But if current working conditions persist, hospitals will struggle to attract and retain qualified nurses. All the nurses I know feel underpaid, underappreciated, and overworked, said Gao. If I could choose again, I would never become a nurse. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldhorn, and follow the news each day from China at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.